Major funding for Unleashed the Pet Show on Connections comes from Rufus Kendig, the Richard T. Bell Foundation, and from the Lilliputian Foundation. Little grants making a big difference. From WXXI News, this is Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made in one of the most natural and authentic places we can make connections as human beings, and that is to animals. We'll be focused a lot this hour on our pets, and we are so excited to bring you Unleash the Pet Show. This will be a regular, regular monthly feature, the third Friday of every month, the first hour. It's a great opportunity for you to communicate with the veterinary community and to, to share your stories, your questions. We've got some reports for you from our staff coming up this hour. And let me go ahead and introduce our guest for the hour. Dr. Danielle Shemansky is here from Hilton Veterinary Hospital. And Danny and I have been talking, we're both cat people. Well, you're, you're, I, you have to be an animal person to be a vet, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Do you Absolutely. know any vets who are not animal people? Or just they're they're okay. Um, I do. I do know some vets <laughs> who are not animal people. You're not here to out them. <laughs> no. But no, you... actually, you know, it, it almost makes them, you know, very good diagnosticians. That's a great point because you're almost desensitized to the process, whereas it can be easily you can get easily emotionally invested, especially if you uh, love yes. animals. You love cats. Danny said to me, "Boy, I want to talk just briefly about something that happened in Rochester last weekend. What was it?" That would be Acro Cats, the cat circus. <laughs> that was probably, I got to tell you, that was probably like a serotonin overload. It was so adorable just to, just to watch that. I, I forgot all of my problems um, when I watched those cats jump through hoops and everything. And what I love is that um, not only are these cats rescued from shelters and um, it, showed, it showed me so many new ways to play with my cat at home <laughs> and appreciate my cat, you know, for being a smart, acrobatic individual. But, you know, I also think about those cats left behind the shelter going, well, Frankie ran away to join the circus. <laughs> but do you think that those cats were enjoying it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could tell they good. loved it. I mean, they got, they got sashimi as treats. So yeah, That is a great point. I would jump through a hoop. To get sashimi as a treat, <laughs> is honestly. A great point. This is a, we are going to take many of your phone calls this hour, and I promise we're going to get through as many as we can because the phone has already been ringing. We do want to start with a, a couple questions that have come in, and you can communicate with us online. We are on Facebook. It's Unleash the Pet Show, and it's Unleashed on Air on Twitter or hashtag Unleashed as well. So there's a lot of ways to communicate with the program this hour. You can also call 844 844- 295-TALK, 844-295-8255. And on the question of cats, on the question of what we do about cats to kind of tear up the furniture. Around my house, that's been happening for years. I've got a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old <laughs> cat. Uh, and when I was growing up, we had two cats. I had a Siamese cat named Puying, which means girl in Thai, by the way. That's the truth. Um, and my mother had our cats declawed. But my wife said, there's no way we're declawing our cats. That's like ripping their fingers off. How do we feel about declawing cats, first of all? Well, that is a – so declawing a cat is a personal choice. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you that there are so many other things that you can do besides declaw a cat. Um, first of all, you can put you can put deterrents like aluminum foil mm -hmm. on the couch. Like let's, let's say your cat is clawing at the couch, yep. you know, and let's pretend it's a $3,000 leather couch or something. And uh, you can, and your cat's been jumping on it, and you really don't want them on it. You don't want them clawing the sides of it. You can put things like double-sided sticky tape. You could put aluminum foil. 
and you can put even a carpet runner with the spiky side out, you know, just to make it unpleasant. Now, it doesn't have to be like that forever. It may take a month or so for the cat to realize it's not the most pleasant thing to do to, to claw your couch. Um, but you can, and it, the most important aspect of this is providing a better option for your cat. You can't yell at a cat. You can't squirt it with a bottle. You know, they won't understand. They'll just think that you, their owner, went crazy for a moment, and then they'll just wait until you leave. That's not going to be a deterrent effect, shooting them with a spray bottle of water. Right. Does that work for dogs, by the way? Because I've seen, I know, I know some people who might be listening right now, and they've got two dogs, and they are consistently shooting them with the spray bottle. <laughs> I think it works a little better for dogs than it does with cats. Does because not work dogs want to, they're pack animals, they want to please you, and they want to, they want to be part of the family. Cats um, want to choose your family and feel comfortable with themselves in your house. So you have to get them to decide. So you give them a better option and you make whatever they're doing that you don't like a worse option. So give them a nice high place to perch, give them, you know, something to scratch and make sure there's plenty of catnip or, you know, maybe feel a way to attract them to that and and you can go from there. Very but. good. Uh, we're going to get to the phones now, and uh, my guest is Dr. Danny Shemansky from Hilton Veterinary Hospital here on Unleashed the Pet Show. Our first caller is Mark. Mark has a, a four-month-old black lab. Is that right, Mark? Yes, he's four months old. And I guess my question is, is we've heard a whole bunch of different things about when to get him fixed. Um, and the rumor that I'm hearing is the longer you wait, it's the better. And I'd really like to hear what the doctor feels about that. <laughs> okay. That is a big topic right now. Um, there's a lot of literature out there, um, some saying that um, early early spaying and neutering can, you know, can create uh, um, problems with their growth, um, and it can create joint problems in the future. So the problem is no one really defines how early early spaying and neutering is. The most important thing right. is you can you can wait as long as, you know, I, I recommend um, at least spaying a dog before their first heat because, you know, every time when they go into heat, um, you increase their chance of mammary cancer um, with, with the heat cycle. So um, you want to spay them right before their first heat. So Which is how old usually? Um, usually about 10 months old. Okay. Um, so if you want to spay he, them. He's a male. He's a male, yeah. So I mean, some people yeah. some people wait a year. Some people for the larger okay. breeds. This is more of an issue with the larger breeds. And since you have a lab, you know that's, you know that's part of it. But th some of the literature, there, there's just a lot of fuzzy areas in that, um, you know. But it has created a lot of talk lately. Uh, so unfortunately, there's not a hard and fast answer for this. No. Okay. If he can no, wait, but a year sounds reasonable, is what you're saying. I mean, if 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 it's yeah, but you know, off, more often than okay. not, we we neuter at six months. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and a yeah. lot of those dogs tend to do just fine. Okay. Sounds like if you can wait a little bit more, Mark, um, that yeah, might be a better. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank, sure. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Uh, it's a great question. And, again, I think it's an important point Danny makes. Literature is happening. The, the study is happening, but we don't have a conclusive, perfect answer on that. Karen is next up. Go ahead, Karen. Hi. Um, I have a question about my um, awesome, smart, golden retriever. Um we have a small farm, and I wondered how concerned I should be about him foraging for chicken and other animal feces and dead carcasses. I <laughs> want to make sure he doesn't become sick, and uh, I keep an eye on him, but he's always uh, finding something. Well, a dog is always going to be a dog. 
Um, they they love things that I can't imagine that they would love. <laughs> I don't understand. They they have a sense of smell that's fifteen thousand times more powerful than ours. So I imagine that you know on the subject of feces, they must be smelling the original dinner or something. Isn't that amazing? Uh, it's it's it I fascinates feel bad for me. them in that way though. <laughs> But I mean, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it can make them sick. I have seen dogs come in after eating a lot of, you know, goose and rabbit feces, not feeling so well. Um, a lot of, you know, some of those, some of the parasites for those animals don't really affect dogs. But if they get into, you know, cat feces or, you know, or other feces from other dogs or raccoons or things like that, you know, you want to keep them away from it. But I mean, ultimately, a dog is going to be a dog, and chances are they're going to get into it before you get a chance to get it out of their mouth. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yep. I got to keep an eye on him. <laughs> well, K- Karen, good luck. And again, that's another one where where there's this is sort of a dogs will be dogs kind of a thing. It sounds like Danny. Yeah. I mean, the technical the technical term for feces eating is coprophagy. So on the topic of coprophagy, you know, that's uh, that's basically it. They they love it. I can't explain it. I wish I had a better answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> Dan is up next. Go ahead, Dan. Hi, I've got a um, St. Bernard, and I'm wondering if, if she can actually be allergic to our cat. Um, our cat likes to nuzzle around, like, her chest area, uh-huh. and she randomly breaks out in, like, a bad, I mean, just a bad rash through her belly area. I am so glad you brought that up. Um, it may, is, is this all year long, or is this seasonal that the rash happens? It's. It seems to be, I mean, to be honest, she's only about a year and a half old, and so the cat's only been around since spring. Uh-huh. So it, it seemed to have, have gotten worse this summer. She also likes to spend a lot of time, we have a crypt out in front of our house, so she spends a lot of time walking oh. in there, too. Uh-huh. But the cat spends a lot of time grooming her in the chest area, uh-huh. and that's where the rash is. That's that's where the, where the, the worst part of it is. Um. First of all, dogs can be allergic to many, many things. And at a year and a half old, that's when you start seeing all the things that that your dog is allergic to. I actually have tested some dogs that have been allergic to people, ironically. So that is a possibility. But, um, you know, rather than it's not super common for dogs to be allergic to cats. I'm sure that happens. Um, But I think more likely what's going on is some type of allergy to something. And usually dogs aren't allergic to one thing. They're allergic to many things. Um, Ragweed, goldenrod, uh, grass, fleas. A lot of dogs have a, you know, flea allergy and it only takes one flea to break out into, you know, this horrendous rash. So I, and on top of that, swimming in a, swimming in a creek, you know, full of bacteria and God knows what else, that's, that is also um, a bacterial extravaganza. Dan, thanks for the phone call. And briefly, just as a follow-up, Danny, so if you've got a dog and you are suspecting there's some kind of an allergy, go see your veterinarian, ask for a basic kind of a test? Um, well, usually we usually we resort to testing, you if know. If it's severe? It, yeah, if, 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 it's if it's severe extreme. and it, and this becomes a chronic issue. You know, the first time... The first time a dog presents for, you know, itchiness, they start they start scratching, and mm-hmm. um, you know, if they're allergic to something, that's how, that's how dogs show you that they're allergic to something. They get itchy. They don't really get hay fever. They get itchy, and so when they're scratching themselves and creating inflammation in their skin, then their skin becomes this really hot and tropical environment, and the bacteria and yeast that already live on their skin just start 
procreating and making the dog even itchier. So yes, go see your veterinarian, stop the itching cycle, and uh, and take care of any secondary infections that follow. Dr. Danny Shemansky is my guest for the hour from Hilton Veterinary Hospital in this edition of Unleash the Pet Show. We'll be taking more of your phone calls. I see the phone ringing. We've got questions coming in via Twitter at Unleashed on Air. And uh, Danny also has some ideas for brushing your pet's teeth, which she's going to be revealing, which is a big problem for a lot of people. So we'll get to that as well coming up. Much more to come on this edition of Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. Support for your public radio station comes from our members and from the financial advisors of the Sartini Group at Morgan Stanley, 585-987-6053. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. And Natural Pet Foods Company, helping people make diet choices for their pets, offering frozen and grain-free foods and foods for pets with special needs. 766 Clinton Avenue in the South Wedge. NaturalPetFoodsCompany.com Whether you're a dog lover, cat lover, bird lover, or any other kind of pet, you can follow Unleashed online. Like Unleash the Pet Show on Facebook, Follow us on Twitter at Unleashed On Air or listen to the podcast at WXXI.org slash Unleashed. And thank you for listening. Welcome back to Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. Third Friday of every month, your chance to interact with the veterinary community. We'll be getting back to your questions in just a second. And I see some questions coming in via Twitter, for example, questions about dogs and, and sort of dog training. So we'll get to that with Danny Shemansky, our veterinarian for the hour, uh, in just a moment here. You can also call the program 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255. That number is toll free. And now we want to meet a special dog named Sophia. WXXI's Alex Crichton recently spent some time with the Siragusa family and their diabetic alert dog. Sophia, check. Okay, let's go check. That's 13 year old Madison Siragusa and her diabetic alert dog, Sophia, performing a routine they do many times a day. Sophia is trained to alert Madison if she senses Madison's blood sugar levels are high or low. Carrie Siragusa says her daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 10, and they had to redo their entire lifestyle for Madison. She says as soon as her daughter was diagnosed, she started doing research online about the disease and eventually spoke with the National Institute for Diabetic Alert Dogs. Got to speak with Lily Grace there and learn all about them and what they do and how much of a lifesaver they can be, and I said, well, that's what I want for my daughter. Okay, check. Where is it? Okay, so you're dropping Siragusa says Sophia was trained to alert Madison when her blood sugar levels fluctuate or get too high or too low. It can take a year to 18 months to fully train a diabetic alert dog. It begins with scent training when they are born and includes work with behavioral training. Saliva samples were collected when Madison's blood sugar levels were high and low and were sent to the institute where Sophia was trained on Madison's scent. Sophia paws at Madison when she detects a potential problem. Siragusa says Sophia made a difference from day one. When we first received her, it was alert right away. Right when she walked in the door, she knew Madison and right to Madison, and she smelt the change. And Madison was uh, running in the two to three hundreds, I believe, at that time. And Sophie alerted right away. And that's nothing we would have found out by ourselves until it was time for her to test. 
as far as I know, there are no really well-controlled trials using diabetes alert dogs to really understand whether they're effective or not. Stephen Hamas is the chief of the Division of Endocrinology at the University of Rochester Medical Center. But certainly, anecdotally, a lot of people use them, and they feel that they really do help, and they do seem to be able to sense when glucoses are high and also, I think even more importantly, when glucoses are low. Dr. Hamas says the tried-and-true method to check glucose levels is the glucometer. Now there are a number of glucose sensors available, most of them associated with insulin pumps. He says it's the next step in continuous glucose monitoring. And while there may not be enough scientific evidence behind diabetic alert dogs, they can be a big help for a family who has a member with the disease. As far as I know, the jury's still out. I think it's a great addition to trying to take care, especially of a child with diabetes, because it just adds another layer of security, perhaps, to the family and to the child. And also, of course, it's comforting to have a dog who will be your friend and will be your support and maybe be able to help you with your diabetes control. But I don't think I would use that in lieu of the other important things that are necessary, which is seeing your physician, checking your glucoses at a regular time intervals, and really learning how to understand how much insulin you need to take when you're depending upon your sugar level. Dr. Hamas says there's a lot of education for the kids and for the parents, too. He considers a diabetic alert dog an adjunct, and it's not a bad idea if someone can afford one. Kerry Syracuse says they had to come up with $18,000 to get Sophia, but she says it's been a very worthwhile investment. She is our world. She's another child to me. She gets the best of the best, and she deserves it for every day that she alerts Madison and saves her life. 13-year-old Madison says it was very scary when she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a couple of years ago, but she says Sophia has made a huge difference in her life. Really exciting. She helps me a ton. She goes mostly everywhere I go, but school. Currently, Madison isn't allowed to take her diabetic alert dog to school. Carrie Saragusa says that's a big concern and frustration. She says the school district considers Sophia redundant because Madison can test her blood sugar whenever she wants to. Madison wears a glucose meter but can't feel changes in her blood sugar levels. Siragusa says they do have a case with the Department of Justice with the school district Madison attends. She gets a treat anytime she alerts, and she's in the right area. Like She caught her going down, so she can have a treat for that. Meantime, Sophia accompanies Madison wherever she goes, and Carrie Siragusa says there are some do's and don'ts for the general public with regard to service dogs. You don't want to approach a service dog, and we've had that happen quite a few times. People just rush up to her because she's cute. It's different when you're at home in a controlled environment. When you're out, you never want to approach a service dog. You don't want to make eye contact. You don't really want to talk to them. You just want to let them be and do their job. As for 13-year-old Madison, she says she's very happy her family made the decision to get their diabetes alert dog. I'm Alex Crichton. All right, thanks to Alex Crichton and Danny and I were listening to this piece going, boy, dogs are amazing with what they can detect. And, and again, I know I understand that the, the, the diagnosis here and the prescription is the do- don't rely on a dog to do everything for you medically. But, boy, you hear these amazing stories, Danny, about what they can detect oh, in their owners. Oh, seizures and heart attacks. And, I mean, it's just fascinating. I actually heard of a dog who there was a kid who was allergic to – I swear to God, just about everything. And this dog was able to detect ahead of time whether this kid was going to get exposed to something that he was allergic to. So, I mean, that's food-wise, for example. So that was really that was really interesting. And we've talked already in this hour here on Unleash the Pet Show about the sense of smell that dogs have. <laughs> that's just one asset that we just cannot relate to what they experience, no, we, can we? We don't understand. No, not at all. It's they're they're fascinating creatures. Their hearing is fascinating. I mean, they they're just so, so much better equipped for 
for life than we are. <laughs> well, let's get a few dog questions in because they've been coming in, again, online and through various sources. If you want to call the program with any questions about your pets for Dr. Danny Shemansky with Hilton Veterinary, uh, we're, you got a chance to do that right now. It's 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255. And Dr. Shemansky is here from Hilton Veterinary Hospital for the hour. Uh, Marianne writes to us, can you ask your guest about bark training? Do citronella collars work? I have not heard of a citronella collar, uh, Dr. Schmansky. I've heard of bark, uh, of uh, we call bark collars or even like little zap collars. Mm-hmm. What is a citronella collar? So instead of releasing an electric shock to the poor dog every time it barks, mm. I mean, we, we, well, we won't get into that. Instead of doing we, that. We don't seem to like that. You don't seem to like the well, whole shock notion. No, I mean, okay. you know, and, and if you ever forget to take that collar off, I mean, that, that could be a, a real nightmare. Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I've seen that before. And, you know, if it takes a while to figure out that the dog has a bark collar on and it's just scaring itself, that can be really bad. So citronella collars don't, don't release an electric shock. Instead, they'll actually spray an unpleasant odor in the dog's face when it barks. And that's sort of used as a last resort. Um, it, it's very hard to train a dog not to bark. Um, mostly because, if, for example, if a dog is on a chain outside or a little, you know, a tie-in outside and somebody walks by the house, you know, and they'll start barking. And then when that person keeps walking away, that dog just told itself, oh, well, I just made that person walk away and I just protected my house. So how do you tell a dog not to do that? You know, so that's that's what makes it so difficult. So when the dog is being quiet, you got to positively reinforce you know every, every time that they're calm and every time that they're behaving well you positively reinforce them with treats and uh you know and if you have to resort to something like a citronella collar you can you know you can do that but i mean rarely have i rarely have i ever had to go that direction okay um this comes from unleash the pet show's twitter account and patrick says do you recommend giving your dog the lyme disease vaccination and are there known side effects um, like any like any vaccination, they come with side effects. You know, most of most of the vaccine side effects are, you know, a vaccine reaction. So something like swollen face or, you know, um, sometimes trouble breathing. But you know, I have I have haven't seen that with a vaccine reaction. I haven't seen that kind of vaccine reaction with the Lyme vaccine at this time. Um, I do recommend the Lyme vaccine for dogs who are going outside and helping their owners hunt, for example, in in the woods. If your dog is going to be indoors all the time, I, I don't really see it, a reason to be vaccinating it for Lyme. I mean, there's so many vaccines, you know, that we're giving rabies, distemper, lepto, um, you know, so adding a Bordetella vaccine. So adding a Lyme vaccine, you know, you hate to have a, a wellness visit where you're giving like five or six vaccines at the same time. But if, if it's something that your dog is really going to benefit from, or if you found ticks on your dog before, then yes, a Lyme vaccine is a good idea. It's definitely something to consider, especially because Lyme is becoming more and more prevalent in our area. Let's get back to the phones with your questions about your pets answered here in Unleash the Pet Show with Dr. Danny Shemansky. And let's go to Lisa. Lisa's up next. Go ahead, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, I have an eight-year-old Shih Tzu, and um, I don't really know what to do for him. Um, he seems to be getting crankier when he's 
as he's getting older. Okay. Um, in regards to he's nipping, like he nipped a really good friend of mine who's a dog lover and was just petting him, and he just reached around, I mean, just nipped at her hand. And we have a lot of kids, and, of course, Shih Tzus are cute, so I'm, I don't know what to do to help the situation so that he doesn't, you know, start nipping everyone that comes up to him. Right. That's a, that's a really frustrating situation to be in because you want your house guest to, you know, to feel comfortable petting your dog. You love your dog, and, and you want, you know, you want everything to be a positive experience in your house. So I know how frustrating that can be. Um, is is uh, sometimes dogs start will start becoming aggressive if they're painful in some areas. Uh, for example, if there's if they have arthritis issues and somebody touches them the wrong way, um, that that can affect it. If they have an ear infection and you're touching their head, you know they'll get protective of that. And so, um, so I would rule out any medical causes for aggression first. Um, okay. You know, but um, on top of that, if, you know, if you take your dog to the vet and, and there's there's nothing else wrong, um, there are organizations, there are dog trainers that will come to your house and maybe, um, you know, maybe examine what kind of cues that they're getting or what sets them off. I mean, people are trained to really watch this in action. It's one thing when people come into my exam room and ask me questions like that frequently and, you know, I can rule out medical causes. But um, it's it's really useful to see a dog in their home environment and to see what exactly is setting them off. You know, if a small kid is trying to ride your dog or something like that, like a like right. a pony, you know, obviously, you know, <laughs> problem solved. But if there's, you know, if but I mean, there are things a lot more subtle than that that behaviorists can can pick up on. And actually, um, www.doorbellvet.com um, has some veterinarians that can come help you out with that. And there are a few other. Uh, a few other people around um, who can who can help. Does that help, Lisa? Okay, that's a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the phone call, Lisa. It's 844-295-TALK. If you want to join the program with questions for Dr. Danny Shemansky, who is here from Hilton Veterinary Hospital, it's 844-295-8255, right here on this edition of Unleash the Pet Show. It's the third Friday of every month in the first hour. We're going to get back to the phones in just one second. This is our chance to ask you for dealing with pets and dealing with the animal's teeth. You know, my wife and I, again, we've, we've got a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old cat. And uh-huh. we, really, we really wrestled with this because it was recommended to us to get their teeth cleaned professionally, you know, at the vet. At the vet. Mm-hmm. And then you get a bill or, or, or you, get, you get an estimate of $500 or $700. I've heard some people hear $1,000. Whoa. It, that sounds like a lot to you. That's a lot, okay. yeah. Well, Wait, uh, yeah. But, but you hear these numbers and you say, wow, for a teeth cleaning. And that's, first of all, that's very difficult to decide, do you really do that? The, the cat's not telling you that they're in pain, but they can't tell you that they're in pain. What do you generally tell people? Well, most animals will hide their pain from from their owners, and especially hide their pain from the veterinarian. Um, you know, we we do look at the teeth with our annual exams, so that is a good time to discuss whether the animal really needs a teeth cleaning or not. Um, some animals have you know have teeth that you know where the roots are rotten all the way. And I can only imagine what kind of toothaches or, I mean, how how is an animal going to tell us if they have a migraine headache from their tooth hurting them? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's terrible. And not only that, you know, there are, there's so much bacteria involved in tooth abscesses and, 
you know, bacteria can get in the bloodstream. And I've, I've seen all kind of, uh, so many times I've seen dogs whose liver values actually go up from the endotoxin from the bacteria in their mouth. Okay, so two, so before we, we continue with this point, there's two important points here. Number one, it's a quality of life issue. Mm-hmm. And number two, there could be other issues that stem from untreated teeth. Absolutely. So those are big issues. Mm-hmm. Then the question becomes, when do you start actually having them, if you have, if you've got a dog or a cat and they're eight, nine, 10 years old, you've never had them, the teeth cleaned, what should you expect to pay, and do you need to do it every year? Do you do, you do it one time, and that's you know that's sort of good? How do you address that? Um, every animal is different. Certain yeah. breeds have worse teeth than others. For example, greyhounds have terrible teeth. Mm. So do Shelties. I mean, I don't know what it is, but they they it's really bad. <laughs> you know, other dogs, like most labs, you know, can live an entire life without ever needing a dental cleaning. Their teeth are fine. They're hearty. Their gums look good. Interesting. You know, so I, I'm not saying that every lab has good teeth and you never have to do a dental on a lab. But, you know, just in general, there are some there are some trends between the breeds. All right. So ask your vet, but is there a baseline cost that you should expect or does that you know what's the kind of range that you'll have to pay it depends on how many teeth need to be extracted mm-hmm. um, if you're doing blood work before before anesthesia that obviously adds to the cost you know obviously I recommend that um, just to make sure your animal's going to be safe under anesthesia because these procedures are done in, under anesthesia um, most animals won't tolerate us pulling their teeth that'd be a miserable experience for the animal and for us um, but uh, any probably anywhere from 350 bucks to, you know, to 750. If, if you have to do a full mouth extraction, if, it, if a cat has stomatitis where they have, have an autoimmune response to their own tooth roots, then, you know, then you're looking at, you know, $1,000 sometimes plus. Okay. But, but that, it shouldn't regularly be $1,000. No. Okay. No. That's, okay. Those are the extreme cases. Extreme. All right. $350 yeah. to $750. It's a lot of money, but this is a big health issue for the animals. But it's before, an investment. Before yeah. we even get there, mm-hmm. you have said you know a way to get in and get the animal's teeth brushed. I do. How and do you do that? I, I am. You're going to be so excited. You're going to run home. And you're going to want to brush your cat's teeth today. I promise you that. I don't know if you can possibly convince me to do that, but go ahead. I think I can. Okay. I think I can. Now, everyone's going to have to use their imaginoscope because um, obviously we're on the radio. So um, I will do my best to describe this. But number one, 90% of the tartar is on the outside of the upper teeth, right where the animal is not chewing. So it doesn't matter how many dental treats you're giving. They're only if, Every time they eat a dental treat, they're cleaning the occlusive surface of their teeth, so the part that chomps. And they're cleaning the inside of their teeth, but they're not chewing with the outside of their teeth. So that's really where you need to get. Outside upper teeth. Outside upper teeth and, and, and outside lower teeth a little bit, but 90% is on the outside upper. So what you do is you have your animal in front of you. You can do this if you have a small animal. You can sit on the couch and put them in your lap. But make sure they are facing away from you. If you go directly at your animal's head, obviously they're going to play the keep away game with their mouth with you. So have them face away from you. I hold, I use one hand to hold their mouth closed because your aim is to get the 90% of tartar on the outside of the upper teeth. So hold their mouth closed. Otherwise, they're just going to chew on, you know, on the toothbrush or on the towel. I use a towel, a terry cloth towel. It's, it's free. It's already in your house. And just make sure you designate it to that pet because you don't want to use a toothbrushing towel for anything else. Sure. <laughs> but, um, I, I wrap the towel around one finger. And then I touch the teeth from the front until my finger is in line with the outside of their eye. And that's right where the last tooth is. 
and you just take use a white towel and you'll be surprised that it, after one wipe how much junk is on that towel and the towel is nice and soft. It's, if they have gingivitis, a towel isn't going to hurt their gums. Okay, you know? so this will be effective without being excessively painful to Exactly. Them. Okay, terry cloth towel yes. around your finger. Yep. But you still have to get them faced away from you, and you still got a way to get that finger in their mouth. Yeah, hold their mouth closed and just push your finger right in between their lips. That's okay. it. And you're saying it, you're saying I, it works. Yep. I, I wish I could show you right now. Okay. <laughs> we have a number of callers who are waiting to talk to Dr. Danny Shemansky, who is here with us this hour from the Hilton Veterinary Hospital. And uh, we're going to fit in as many more of your questions as we can this hour here. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and grab uh, Jennifer. Actually, uh, Jennifer is next in. Go ahead, Jennifer. Are you there, Jennifer? Go ahead. Yes, hello. Go ahead. Hi. I'm wondering if it's... Hello, I'm wondering if the doctor has a comment on a product called Fellaway, F-E-L-I-W-A-L-I-W-A, excuse me. Um, it's supposed to uh, reduce stress in cats. You plug it into the wall, and I believe it releases some kind of an herbal mist. <laughs> I love Fellaway spray and, and Fellaway diffuser plugins. I, I, I love that because, in fact, I love it so much. Sometimes if I have an aggressive cat or aggressive patient that I'm going to see, I will spray my own coat with it and, and it calms them down. It's a derivative of the facial gland pheromone in cats. Um, and what it does, that's that pheromone, you know, when cats rub their chin everywhere, you know, they're kind of, they're basically saying, oh, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And they're, and they're getting comfortable in their environment. Um, you know, it, it looks affectionate, but it's really claiming, <laughs> um, claiming their territory. And what feel away does is it helps cats already feel comfortable, already feel like, you know, that's theirs and it helps them feel more comfortable in their environment. I would spray it in areas where, where they might feel ill at ease for example if they're not using their litter box as often as they should or you or you want to attract them to a, a litter box or if you want to attract them to that scratching post that evan and i talked about earlier that you prefer them to use than you know than your furniture you put the feel away spray on it and and they like it that answer okay, well i'm oh, yeah that sounds great thank you thank you jennifer thanks for the phone call seth has been waiting go ahead seth hi hi Go ahead. Um, I have a 10-month-old Shih Tzu poodle, and I'm having trouble getting her to learn how to use the stairs. She'll use the outdoor stairs, um, which are actually more, you know, they're taller and harder to get up, but she just will not learn how to use the indoor stairs. Um, I don't know if it's just because she hasn't ever done it before, but I've tried everything, and I just don't know what to do to try to teach her how to go up by herself she's how old 10 months old okay um that's a good question um if she were if she were 10 years old you know i'd wonder if she had any vision problems or if she had any right. um, arthritis <laughs> problems but um i guess something that you can do is obviously po positively reinforce um you can give her a treat at every single stair just to get her more comfortable with it and right. don't make her do the whole flight of stairs at a time. You know, just do it one stair, one step at a time. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, other than that, I wish I, I wish I had a better suggestion for you, um, besides just positive reinforcement and encouragement. And um, you know, do you have any other dogs at your house, or is it just her? Um, I've got a lab husky, and she's two, and then her brother, um, my sister owns her brother, and he comes over, and they all play together. Um, 
So it's good. It's good that you have some, you know, some other dogs that can kind of show her how to, you know, how it's done. Is she just really tiny and, you know, has trouble? Um, she when we first got her, we got her at like we got her way too soon. She wasn't ready to, you know, be let go from her parents. But, um, she's, you know, she really learned everything from the older dogs, and this is just one of those things, you know, she never did learn how to do. Um, she's not too tiny. She's about, I'd say about 11 pounds. Um, her legs are a decent size. So it's just, I guess it's just a matter of breaking her. She has bad anxiety problems. Mm. Um, anytime she hears a noise, she'll go running behind the couch. So I yeah. don't know. Um, I, I mean, who knows? Stressed by who knows if something's, couch. yeah, I mean, who knows if something scared her at the bottom of the stairs, you know what I mean? Right. At one point. Yeah. So just, you know, just be consistent and constantly reward her for going up or down those stairs. Well, Seth, I hope it helps. And there's going to be a breakthrough moment and it's going to be amazing. I mean, I, I remember when we had our, our kittens who were technically feral and they didn't want anything to do with us. And then one day I got home from work and the one little black one walked right down the hall to me and she flopped at my feet. And I said, there's the breakthrough. And it's always an amazing moment with our pets. Short break, more of your questions answered. And we're going to hear from our colleague Beth Adams as well. It's all coming up next on Unleash the Pet Show on Connections. Major funding for Unleashed the Pet Show on Connections comes from Rufus Kendig, the Richard T. Bell Foundation, and from the Lilliputian Foundation. Little grants making a big difference. Coming up in our second hour, it's Second Opinion Live, your chance to interact with doctors in the medical community with your questions. And today's topic is cholesterol. If you've got questions about cholesterol, your chance to call the talk show or use the hashtag on Twitter, 2NDOP, Second Opinion Live, next hour. Welcome back to Unleash the Pet Show here on Connections. Third Friday of every month, first hour is where you can find it. I'm Evan Dawson. We couldn't do this program if we weren't genuinely animal lovers, and we are, but the biggest animal lover among us is Beth Adams. It's my colleague, the host of Morning Edition. She had the opportunity to interview Courthouse Dogs co-founder Celeste Walson. Here's Beth and Celeste. My partner, Ellen O'Neill Stevens, has a disabled son who got a service dog Jeter when he was 21 when he graduated from high school but one day a week Jeter couldn't be at home with Sean and Ellen had the brainstorm to bring Jeter that day to court once a week to juvenile drug court where teenagers are sentenced to undergo a judge supervised drug program and when Jeter was there those days it made an incredible difference for the teenagers that had to come to court um, and be in front of the judge. What actually happened between the dog and the teens? What did you witness? Uh, the teenagers were actually happy to be there. Some of them came early so that they could take Jeter for a walk, have a, a closely supervised walk before they came to court, and they wanted Jeter to sit with them and lean on them when they had to be in front of the judge and find out how they were doing that week. So you got this idea that dogs have a place in the courtroom. Well, absolutely. You know, courtroom is a very stressful place for all of us, whether you're a witness or whether you work there. Um, court sometimes brings out the worst in people because it's an adversarial uh, situation. 
And for a vulnerable person, a mentally disabled person, a young person, a rape victim, it can just be terrifying. And now 12 years later, how many courthouse dogs are there around the country? And I think even internationally, you have dogs. Yes, there are 86 of these dogs working in 28 states around the United States. There are a number of dogs working across Canada. In Chile, the dogs are used in family court and in the investigation of crime. And in October, we have our international conference, and a team is coming from Barcelona, Spain, because they're very interested in starting a program there. Is it up to the judge in any given jurisdiction whether the dog is allowed into a trial? It is absolutely up to the judge in each individual trial. However, the dogs actually serve their most frequent purpose during the investigation of crime. The dogs are used now widely at child advocacy centers when children who have been sexually assaulted or physically abused have to come and speak to a detective. Tell us a little bit about what goes into the training of the dog and what's expected of the dog, especially in one of these interview situations or in an open courtroom. I imagine there are rules and guidelines that that have to be followed. Oh, very much so. All of the courthouse facility dogs who work around the United States are graduates from accredited service dog schools. Assistance Dogs International accredits the schools and sets the training standards. And in the assistance dog world, these dogs are called facility dogs, and they have the same amount of training as a guide dog for a blind person. They're two years old or older when they're placed. Um, They meet a transparent training standard that's available online that um, outlines their behavior in public. But in the investigation and prosecution of crime, one of the most important attributes of these dogs is that they're very quiet and calm no matter what happens around them. They are not reactive at all to their environment. I, and I wondered about that because when you think about, say, a therapy dog that's coming to visit a, a nursing home or something, you think about that dog interacting with the patients, right? But in a courtroom setting, could that be a distraction to the jury or could it influence the jury unduly? Uh, could seeing a dog at the feet of a witness cause a jury to be more sympathetic to that side? Well, you, you've really uh, brought up a very important issue. Um, courthouse facility dogs, in some ways, have the opposite set of talents than a good therapy dog. A good therapy dog wants you to pet them. They want to interact with you. And while our dogs are very friendly and charming and play with the child, say, in the lobby, when they go into a forensic interview, and more especially even when they're on the witness stand, they don't react to the child. They lie quietly at the feet pretty much no matter what happens. In other words, they don't cue the jury that this person is under stress. And I want to point out that the dogs primarily lie at the feet because they are hidden by the witness box in most courtrooms. Well, we seem to know what people get out of this experience. It's a calming experience, right, for the person to get through their testimony or the, the interview that they're going through. What do you think this does for the dog? Why does the dog enjoy this, assuming they do? Oh, they absolutely do. Um, These dogs all come from purpose-bred lines that were bred to be assistance dogs. And facility dogs are chosen because they enjoy being with a range of people. I have to tell you, most of these dogs spring out of bed in the morning ready to go to work. Their job's to snuggle, just like a drug dog is taught to search for drugs. 
These dogs are taught to snuggle with people. It's a great job for them. It's a nice job if you can get it, right? Absolutely. That's my colleague Beth Adams talking about, again, the remarkable work that dogs can do. I mean, everybody's mood changes, by the way, when there's a dog in the office. I mean, Danny, you, Dr. Chemansky has got dogs in the office every day because of your job at Hilton. Those dogs but, aren't too excited to see me. No, in the <laughs> veterinary hospital. Everyone's happy that Lilliput's been here today, though. So the fact that we've got Lily here has made everybody in a good mood. In fact, our listeners can't see it, but I think Kathy Reed's going to. Yeah, there's there's Lily back there. Everyone, everybody's just mood changes. So I'm not surprised that someone testifying in court would feel the same way. Oh it's, yeah, I mean animals are they help us feel they they help us feel so much more uncomfortable and they they are our feel away. Well, Lily the dog who's been hanging out with us today is the chairman of the Lilliputian Foundation. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Um, and um, and. Even my son loves small, do- small dogs. He loves Paw Patrol. That's his favorite show So right now, So, which may change next week. Now, we're going to get back to the phones. We've got a few minutes left in Unleash the Pet Show. And if you're just joining us, we've been talking this hour with Dr. Danielle Shemansky, Shum- uh, who is here from the Hilton Veterinary Hospital and waiting to join the conversation has been Lynn. Go ahead, Lynn. Hi. 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 Thank you for taking my call. Um, I am calling because uh, my cat... Um, has uh, severe stomatitis. She, it's a recurring problem mm-hmm. um, that she gets. Her teeth get very inflamed and painful, and uh, to the point where she stops eating and eventually stops drinking. Um, and the treatment has been to give her prednisone shots, mm-hmm. and that does um, take care of it. Mm-hmm. But it has happened. It started to happen uh, so often that. Uh, the veterinarian has recommended extracting all of her teeth. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're probably going to do that. But um, I was just wondering um, what your opinion is, if there are other treatment possibilities or anything. Um, unfortunately, because because of that disease and because the autoimmune component of that disease um, can get so severe, um, I, I do, I do recommend a full mouth extraction and, and I know it sounds severe and I know it seems like, oh my gosh, how is my cat going to eat? But I guarantee if, if your cat feels better, um, from not having painful gums and, and teeth, then, um, then they do just fine. They do just fine without their teeth and, and they're so much more comfortable. Um, it, you know, in, in some rare cases, even after the full mouth extraction, they still will have some issues, but you know, in those cases, you still continue to do the prednisone shots and the prednisone is just dampening that immune system that's attacking their own mouth. Mm-hmm. Right. So that is one thing that, um, our veterinarian, uh, mentioned is that there's not, it's not necessarily going to cure the problem. He estimated there was a 70% chance of, um, hearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, is that your experience as well? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe even a little more, you know, but you want to make sure that you're doing it at a place, um, where you can, you can do dental x-ray and, and make sure that all those tooth roots are gone because if the tooth roots are left behind, sometimes you'll get a recurrence of that. Good luck, Lynn. I know it's not an easy spot to be in, um, but good luck with that. We're going to squeeze in one more phone call and this is Emily. Go ahead, Emily. Hi, Evan. Uh, I just wanted to call in because we are puppy raisers for a national service dog organization called Canine Companions for Independence, known as CCI. 
and uh, we are currently raising our fourth puppy for the organization, and we have these dogs for about a year and a half, and our main uh, objective is socialization, so the dogs go with us anywhere and everywhere. I actually have my dog with me right now, I'm out mm-hmm. about, and um, just, uh, we work with them for that, and then we turn them back in for advanced training and keep our fingers very crossed that they graduate and become service dogs with Canine Companions for Independence, and it's just hearing uh, talk about the court dogs and everything just um, really was meaningful, and uh, these dogs can do incredible work. Well, and are you guys online, by the way, Emily? Uh, CCI is online, so it's cci.org, and they, like I said, they're a national organization, and they, they place dogs with uh, families who need them for, for free, so they are... That, you know, these are unbelievably well-trained uh, service animals, and the idea that, that people can get them for free is, is an amazing thing that this organization does, and we're just uh, really proud to be puppy raisers for them. As far as I know, we're the only local puppy raisers, and everybody says I couldn't do it because I couldn't give a dog up, but I promise you that, the, that you know, what we get back in hoping that these dogs change people's lives is worth it. So if anybody's interested in becoming a local puppy raiser, dci.org is, is the place to go. Great stuff, Emily, and I'm so glad you were able to call the program and, and let our listeners know about that. That's again, great. again, no surprise, uh, amazing things dogs are doing out there. Right, right. Emily, that's really important work, and I'm, I'm just, thank you for your service. I think that's great, a great thing that you're doing. We're going to squeeze in one more quick question, because fall's coming in the Finger Lakes region. Unfortunately, we will have a frost soon. A lot of people stop uh-huh. doing um, sort of flea treatment, flea medication for their dogs after the first frost, uh-huh. should they? Don't stop it. Don't stop it. <laughs> Don't stop. Not after the first frost. Every time, um, as soon as we get a frost, everyone stops the flea medications. But you know what? There are flea eggs and whatever that can that can lie dormant for up to six years under your couch. And so as soon as the weather warms up just a little bit, those those fleas will those fleas will hatch from their eggs and wreak havoc. We get a ton of animals that come in after the first frost, and right after the flea medications are stopped. Um, you know, with with horrendous flea allergies and flea um, flea revival. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, um, so don't stop. In other words, very don't good. stop. Okay. And and one one good way to get rid of fleas, by the way, is um, vacuuming your house not once, um, but every twenty four hours for a couple of days. The fleas flea eggs will hatch with. Um, with uh, uh, carbon dioxide, heat, and physical disturbance, all of which are provided by your vacuum. So if you vacuum, you'll wake up the eggs, and then you vacuum again, and you'll get those fleas. Okay, very good stuff. Great stuff all hour. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me and, too, and Evan. You this here. is so much fun. Will you come back sometime? Please, please. I and would love to. Dr. Danielle Shemansky joining us from the Hilton Veterinary Hospital. I've had a great time with her and with you today. Thanks so much for uh, for listening to the program. This has been Unleashed, and you can let us know what you think about the show by tweeting us at Unleashed on Air or hashtag Unleashed. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Unleashed Pet Show, or email us, unleashed at wxxi.org. It's the third Friday of every month, first hour. Next, it's Second Opinion Live.